Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hello, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast from Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Tim Faulkner. Tim's a well-known wildlife expert and also has his own TV show. He's fighting to preserve Tassie devils and other endangered native creatures at his captive breeding facility, Aussie R. Tim will be sharing his views on the future of Australian wildlife conservation. So I'm really thrilled and excited to be able to sit down with Tim Faulkner on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for having me. Tim, you've got fans all over the world, and mainly through your TV show, The Wildlife of Tim Faulkner, which is now, I think, in its third series. So what do you think is the appeal for those international audiences of Australia's wildlife and nature? Well, I think the appeal is the same as that of my biggest fans, my two kids. And they love nature. They love wildlife um, and they love to learn about it. And so international people have a fascination with Australian wildlife because it is unique. It's not like anything they see. Um, And I think the venomous animals, while there's a stigma about, uh, you know, how deadly Australia is and... But there's something alluring about that and people are curious. They sure are. I think, you know, it's really one of the first things that people talk about when they get off a plane to visit is really, you know, they do think that they're going to be beset by crocodiles and spiders and snakes the moment they step on the tarmac. And I think we play that up a bit, don't you reckon? Well, I played it down for a very long time, you know. Someone would come uh, through the park and they'd say, I didn't see a kangaroo on the way here. Or do I need to be careful of snakes? And for a long time I used to say, well, look, that's not really how it is. And then there came a point I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go along with this and, yeah, be careful, watch where you walk. And kangaroos just around the corner, I had some in my front yard this morning and uh, so I think we do play it up and uh, for me, as I say, playing it down then up, I think that's great. Yeah, look, I think we find that at Australian Geographic as well. You know, any time we do a story on deadly snakes on the website, it goes viral. Yep. So, yeah, look, I think it's good. And I think the really great thing is that once people get here, that just gives us the chance to kind of get into the subject a bit deeper. And I guess that's part of the the reptile park's attraction for visitors as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're a, a reptile park. We've got lots of cute and cuddly animals too. However... You know, our big market is Western Sydney. And a lot of these guys, they spend time in the bush and these families, they know what wombats and kangaroos are, but their fascination is spiders and snakes and the same fascination that I had as a kid. And so to be able to, uh, I guess, engage people with that, you know, I guess in some capacities, chopping the head off a snake because you saw it and somehow it was going to track you down and kill you, it's seemingly uh, dissipating, you know, and... Uh, A fascination with reptiles has also turned... I mean, they are one of the most popular pets throughout the world. And under the right circumstances where there's not poaching from the wild and all these things, of course, um, 
they make a great family pet. They're, they're easier to care for than a dog. And I, in that case, advocate for it because for kids to spend time with animals develops caring, empathy, compassion, understanding, and it's very important. Yeah, and of course, you, even if they're not a pet, we do actually have them in our backyards in Australia. Yes. And we have a, um, an enormous variety, really, of different lizards and yeah, things we, in your back garden. We have the largest diversity of lizards anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our, our, our backyards and the reptiles that uh, inhabit them, they've done well because... And I mean, you, you've got the commons like your blue tongue lizard or your eastern brown snake, maybe not, but they've made a, a real resurgence back into suburbia. And I mean, in Brisbane, be a decade ago now, I learned that there were, in the outer suburbs of Brisbane, there was a carpet python per three houses. Mm. And I'm really seeing on the central coast a resurgence in diamond pythons. And they eat rodents, um, possums, bats, and these things are all doing okay given the, the circumstance. And so diamond pythons are, are really coming back into suburbia. Well, it's nice to hear of an animal coming back, but yep. animals, not all animals are coming back, are they? And nope. in fact, we've got some enormous problems, as we know in Australia, and we'll get to that in a little while, but there is something that you're doing about that yes. through the Australian Reptile Park, and that is the, the Devil Ark, which is, yep. today is called the Aussie Ark, uh, and that is uh, an ambitious captive breeding program that you run as well. Yep. Um, tell us a little bit about where, where that happens and how that came about. Yes, well, the Aussie Ark is in the Barrington Top, it's at an elevation of 1,400 metres, ranges down to about 850 metres. It's up in a snow gum, button grass forest with some you know, dinosaur food, Antarctic beach forest, and then it gets down to mountain ash and subtropical rainforest. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because how it started was uh, John and Robin Weigel are the founders of the Australian Reptile Park, and I've been at the park now for um, in my 16th year. Second job ever, never been for an interview. <laughs> and uh, they are very enthusiastic naturalists, adventurers, um, you know, and real pioneers in this type of conservation. We sunk our teeth into Tasmanian devils in 2006. Uh, there's a disease, devil facial tumour disease, found in, in 1996. By 2003, the authorities were worried and it was time to establish an insurance population. So through that process, the reptile park ended up with about 50 devils uh, that had been acquired from founding stock and bred at the reptile park. But the problem was the industry, because of the nature of devils, they, they fight. If you leave them together in a small, you know, typical um, zoological enclosure, they, they won't breed. And so the zoo industry was full at about 200 devils. In, in various captive in, yeah, breeding that's right. or just, yep. or just you know, in, in In various organisations, um, but 200 devils between the entire population and that's not enough. If this mm -hmm. is an insurance population, the, the big brains, uh, the geneticists tell us that you need to have somewhere between 1,500 and 5,000 devils to have a really viable population. And even if 200 sounds like a lot, you see that you know, 25% of them are too young to breed, 25% are males, 25% are too old. and 20. So your effective population size is much smaller. Anyway, 2009, we've got 50 devils, a really significant portion of the entire population. And John Weigel says, uh, not good enough, we've got to do more. And there's all these complexities of having them at the reptile park. They uh, lose their wild behaviours. Breeding is really difficult. They're very costly. And so we had a basic principle that uh, they don't breed in somewhere the size of, let's say, this office that we're in or a standard backyard. Mm -hmm. 
But somewhere between the size of that and Tasmania, yeah. they will breed. And so we went in search of land and we found Devilark, the Barrington Tops. Uh, we were gifted 500 hectares of land wow. and very quickly moved in to 35 hectare of that, six kilometres of fencing, and found ourselves by 2013-14 with uh, 150 devils producing 50 joeys per year. So from well, how many did you start with to get to that? 47 founders in 2010. Right. Wow, they did well. And was that because the Barrington Tops somehow emulated the sort of the, the, the ecosystems of Tasmania? Yeah, it's look, it's a cliche line, but it's just like a slice of Tassie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really interesting point in the Barringtons because it's the southern distribution of a lot of things, um, like southern angle-headed dragons or log runners and your subtropical type species, but it's still got, it, it, it gets snowfall. I mean, you go from, on the eastern slopes, from subtropical rainforest at sea level, and within a 20-minute drive, you climb from sea level to 1,400 metres to subalpine and snowfall. And so for devils and I guess uh, a range of other species that we'll talk about, uh, but for devils, it was just like Tassie. Right. So that was kind of a bit of luck, really, because it's not a million miles away from where the uh, reptile park is. So it's, you know, it's, it's accessible, I suppose. Yeah, it is. It's a four-hour drive. And we have... Uh, especially, I mean, from day dot, I lived up there for 10 months when Devilark was built. Um, very extensive process. And at that point, it was all governed and run through the Australian Reptile Park. We've put in an extreme, when I say we've, John and Robin Weigel, I think it was a large portion of their proposed retirement fund, but have invested really significantly into the establishment of Devilark um, and later to be Aussie Ark and fledge and become its own not-for-profit. But... Um, through that process, we just fell in love with the Barringtons. And uh, the negative part of it is that it's a virtual ghost town for mammals. Mm. Uh, anything that's, you know, smaller than a, a wombat or a wallaby. And, but we've really fallen in love with that. And so the devils became our focus. And then once that settled and began to work and we could see this pioneering method of that, I mean, and it's not rocket science, right? Give them a bit of space, let them do their own thing, and guess what? They do it. It works, <laughs> you and, know? And, Tim, with that, that that population that you've got there, which obviously is growing yeah. you know, exponentially yeah. now, it must be, are you sending devils out of there into other captive breeding programs? Oh, correct. We're the main facilitator of. I mean, we hold 52% of the entire mainland population of devils. And so we have... Um, there are complexities with devils going back to Tasmania, but we do it, um, and, and proudly so. So the overarching program is governed by the STDP, Save the Devil Program. And it's been, um, you know, at times there are initiatives such as, I mean, we, we aren't willing to send a devil back to get death by tumour. Mm. Yeah, but there are fence peninsulas, islands, Mariah Island, Forest Ear, and the areas like that that have been repopulated. I think there were six devils that returned to Tassie in November of last year, um, about 30 in total over time just to bolster the genetics. But our core aim and goal is that, I mean, the disease, there's still so much unknown about it. There's so many effects once the population, it's been reduced by up to 90% across the state. Oh, that's shocking, isn't it? Uh, it's shocking. And how is it, is it, I mean, is it a cyclical disease that will, will sort of fizzle out at some stage? I don't know. The thing is that, I mean, in its simplest form, consider it like a wildfire. It burns hot, consumes its fuel. And I guess you'd hope that there is little enclaves of bush slash devils that, um, that escape it. But... The, the reality is that that's our best wish. It's not being seen because these little enclaves are then suffering other effects of road strike or right. different um, 
you know, it, the disease may not be the uh, result, the end result, or the reason that they become extinct. And so you've got all type problems with that. But that's the best case scenario. And really simply for us, in a population that we are, and now moving into uh, landscape management, which we can talk about, um, but we might be needed for 20, 30, 40 years. We're talking about a Tasmanian devil here. We lost the tiger mm -hmm. 100 years ago, and our core role is an insurance population to keep a genetically robust, behaviourally intact, reproductively viable population of devils for as long as it takes. So, you know, we need now to grow up to 200, 300, 400 devils, um, and that's the core aim. Yeah, and so you see this as a long-term project and maybe keeping them there for good. Yep. And, and what about reintroducing them into areas outside of Tasmania? Because, of course, yep. they were on the mainland originally. They were, and there was actually an article just this week in the, uh, in the con uh, conversation which uh, talked about just fossil remains from 400 years ago um, and the devil's ecological role. It actually had a really uh, impactful image and I like reading, but I also like pictures. And this picture basically showed the ecosystem 500 years ago, you know, and you had devils and quolls and bandicoots and potteroos and bedongs and wallabies and et cetera, et cetera. And it showed it today. There was a horse, rabbit, cat, pig, fox, and a couple of antichinus, you know, a couple of natives just clinging on. And it's just devastating. And so the rewilding to the mainland, it's a sensitive um, subject because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it can detract from the core aim, which is to keep devils in the wild in Tasmania. Yeah. So that has some sensitivities. But realistically, it's a no-brainer. We are at war and cannot get along with the dingo. And that's something I'm very, very sensitive about in itself because a natural solution to control our ferals is to leave the dingo in the environment. It, mm. Cut a long story short, where you have a dingo, you don't have a fox and a cat. Mm. And the dingo eats large prey like emus and kangaroos and therefore controls herbivores. So it controls herbivores, keeps the feral pests like fox and cat out, and what that means is all the small mammals that we have the world's most infamous uh, largest extinction rate of are protected. We can't get along with the dingo because of its, you know, I mean, today I hear another attack on Fraser Island and um, it's it's tragic because it's been like, I mean, four people die on Australian roads every day or week or whatever, but we all drive cars. Yeah, look, we know that when it comes to shark attacks it's, as well, you know, more, a lot more people drown when they go swimming yes, than they ever yes. attacked by a shark. Uh, but we, we, we do understand about how these things come across the general public and, yep. uh, and our fascination for these kinds of things. But with, with that aside, really, the, the big problem that we've got is ferals yep. in, the, in the wild. So it seems to me that the, the, the solutions that we're, we're following or that are, that are being worked on and, and that seem to be working is to actually fence in the native yep. wildlife from the ferals. We, we, we don't seem to be able to win that battle. No, there's a, fences are a necessary tool for conservation, maybe even a stepping stone. But, you know, that devil and the dingo can represent a natural control measure, even unfenced. If, uh, say, agriculture doesn't have a problem with devils, they don't eat stock, they don't. And so in that case, in an unfenced area, a devil could prospectively, uh, and it's, theorise that they control fox and cat because they go down the burrow and eat their kittens and so forth. But without that, our, our small mammals, I mean, Australia has as many small mammals that have become extinct in the last 200 years as the rest of the world put together. Yeah. And we're really fragile. I mean, our animals can, you know, survive on a leather boot in a dusty plain, but they can't survive with change. Yeah. And 
these ferals, I think the fox and cat are like responsible for up to 92% of all of our extinctions. And they're placental mammals. They have a much bigger brain than our marsupials. I mean, a bandicoot's escape strategy is to run three metres and stop. Mm. And, you know, you can imagine, but imagine historically a devil running after him. And I, I picture the devil like, where did he go, George? You know, and, uh, uh, but this, the fox and cat, they, they're, they're too cunning. They're too bold. They're too, they're too smart. And so at the moment, you know, there's a, an association to a fence that it's not the wild. And this is a, an area that I, I have um, strong opinions about because it's okay to call Lord Howe Island the wild, and it is, but it's surrounded by sea. It's okay to call Dryandra Woodland, you know, last refuge of the numbat in Western Australia, the wild, mm -hmm. and it is, but it's surrounded by a sea of wheat paddocks. Mm. They're no different than a fence. They are virtual fences, virtual... So I don't see the difference between fencing in 10,000 hectares. It's not to keep the natives in, it's to keep the ferals out. Yeah. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, really. yeah, and, and as an... I mean, you look at your, your really big initiatives of, you know, landscape management for um, the, 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 the environment itself as a general, the ecology, but just go to the mammals... You know, under the charge and protection of the, the the very sincere efforts to protect those species, they've still disappeared, and there's just no silver bullet for the uh, fox and cat, but a fence is. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it started with the, the Tasmanian devil, yep. but of course, because of the plight of so many other yep. small and medium-sized marsupials, yep. you've now actually, because you've got the program running so successfully, yep. you have sort of broadened it out. And tell us a little bit about Aussie Ark. So. Yeah, on the success of the methodology of Devil Ark, and again, a, you know, a carnivorous marsupial in a mixed sex, yeah, boys and girls, in a group of up to eight to 15, it's unheard of historically, mm -hmm. you know, and but just give them a bit of space and it did the job, et cetera. So that worked. And um, we then, over, you know, 2012 to sort of 16, we, um, we asked for more land and we ended up with, uh, and our land, by the way, is owned by the Packer family. Right. And so um, there's not a, a financial contribution, but very gener generously given us land and accommodation, et cetera, on a 100-year lease. Hmm. And the thing with that is uh, we asked for more land and we ended up with uh, 2,000 hectares. And you've got to note that fencing is over $100 a metre. Nothing you can do. You got to buy steel. You got to erect the fence. You need some machine work for a trench, etc. And um, you know when you think about it, and you've got that economy of scale that uh, the bigger the fenced area gets, the cheaper the fencing is because there's less of it. And I did a sum to fence New South Wales is three hundred and sixty million. And when I say that's all, sounds like a lot, but you only got to do it once. And I, you know, not, not to suggest you would, but the economies um, come down significantly. And um, so we had 35 hectares fenced in for Devil, six kilometres of fence. October last year, we just completed the fence around our first uh, uh, feral-free sanctuary, which is 400 hectare. It's big, you know? Mm. And um, so what happened was with the success of Devils and our development of a great love for the Barringtons, we started to look at which mammals were applicable within our region that were gone. Eastern quoll was there 100 years ago, now extinct on mainland. Brush-tailed rock wallaby, critically endangered in parts in the southern central populations. Uh, bandicoot, uh, you know, southern brown bandicoot, long-nosed bandicoot, uh, rufous bedong, 
which, you know, doing okay up north, but very restricted down south. Um, all of these mammals that are absent from the Barringtons uh, were something that we started to get involved in. And in the very early stages of that, Australian Geographic supported the Eastern Quoll Program, which mm. saw us go now. We have 75 quolls. I was there that day. You were there. <laughs> we were there. The um, first day you released them into the enclosure. And, you know, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, there are uh, 40 Eastern quolls, 20 of which are from the Ark, heading down to Boudere National Park for the uh, first ever mainland release. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so, yeah, kudos to you guys. Um, but that's uh, – we diversified and – we changed our aims and expanded in that basically of all these species of mammal, we have created a bank, an insurance population. And so even if our sanctuaries, let's say, I don't know, something catastrophic happened like a disease or a, a ferals got in, uh, we will never deplete the ark, which is the bank itself. But we're now moving into that landscape management. But we want to do it right in our part of the world. So the next step... Um, is to try and acquire ten to twenty thousand hectares of land. And is that would that be contiguous with where yeah. you are now? Yeah. Right. So uh, okay. the ideal will be we actually border on to the Barrington Tops World Heritage National Park and State Conservation Area, and I haven't had the relevant discussions yet. But there's a really nice block of state forest um, that we want to go knocking on the door for. And what we've got is really wonderful partners in America that essentially are giving us the, no matter how much land you can get, 10,000 or 100,000 hectare, we'll fence it. And that's up to 12 million. Mm. So that's our ambition right now is to convert that. And, you know, um, you know, Australia needs its own solutions because the rest of the world, and I call the rest of the world, the entire rest of the world above New Guinea and the Kimberley of Australia, just north of Australia. And you've got this place called Wallachia, Wallace's line. Alfred Russell Wallace was the co-founder of the theory of evolution with Charles Darwin. So basically, you go up to northern Australia or, 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 or uh, West Papua and you throw a rock over to Indonesia and you get primates, bears, cats, dogs. We don't have any of that in Australia. It's been separated for so long from the rest of the world and whether you're from Africa to Europe to America, they have all of this continuation of species. But Australia, we had marsupials, you know, kangaroos that live in trees, um, a diversity of reptiles like no other. But with that came an incredible uniqueness. Now, let's say to our friends in the US, their ideal model is to buy land and preserve it. And it works, whether it's in Patagonia, Colombia, Africa, Indonesia. And it works. The natives can stronghold. Mm. We buy land in Australia and put it aside, protect it. You're just feeding the fox and cat. It's really difficult. And so what we've come up with is a clever model of converting fencing to a per acreage cost. So by spending an amount on a particular area of fencing, let's say 10,000 hectares, you can actually get your uh, per acreage cost to about 150 bucks per acre protected by a fence. And that becomes really relevant. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. 
Plus, you'll receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all our products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. I just want to go back to talk about the reptile park, yeah. actually, because it's actually now um, New South Wales' leading wildlife tourism attraction. Yeah. I mean, how how has that happened? Is that related to your TV show? Yeah, so... Potentially? Uh, look, it was really successful long before my TV show, mm. and the period of growth um, has certainly been helped by a presence on TV. However... We've also got a booming population in Sydney. The Central Coast population has doubled in the past decade and a half. And so there are, are more people. But, you know, we pride ourselves and have really operated um, in a sense of, like, I don't have a problem with this, by the way, but we don't have exotic mammals. We don't have, uh, you know, orangutans or uh, mm. uh, rhinos, giraffe. We don't keep... Yeah. We keep a largely native collection with a few exotic reptiles because, you know, we've got to have... A reticulated python. Mm-hmm. People need to see that. <laughs> but we're a really hands-on experience, a really personal experience. You don't walk through our organisation and see a sign that says, give us a dollar or the animal gets us. We barely self-promote our conservation mm-hmm. activities. Mm-hmm. We want an immersive experience for kids. And I heard the wonderful Mr Attenborough asked one day, and I'm sure to the shock in the reply that he gave, someone said, uh, you know, well, what's your take on zoos? And he says, they're critical. You know, we had 22 million people visit zoos in Australia last year. 16 million were Australians. Mm. 10% of the world's population visit a zoo annually. We are an interface. Most kids won't go to Africa and see an elephant. And they. And this is what the wonderful Mr Attenborough said. He said, I can show it to them on television, but they can't smell it. Mm. They can't see it. And they don't really understand it because on television, it's the same as Pokemon mm. to a degree. And to have that experience for us to be an interface, and this is the Reptile Park's incredibly proud point with our natives, is that, you know, that experience in kids, people, but much greater chance of changing the perception of kids, um, develops an understanding. And if people don't understand something, they will never care about it. And how do we do that? I mean, how do we get the children out into the into the bush as well? I mean, yeah. I mean, I know that we're losing these creatures from the bush. They're harder and harder yeah. to spot. But there's still things out there. There's yeah. still amazing birds that you can even see in your backyard. So yeah. it's a big problem, I think. Uh, no, it is. And uh, and I don't have the magic solution for that. Um, I, I do my darndest, as you guys do, to, uh, to, to try and influence mm. kids and their parents. I mean, the beauty of targeting kids is that... You get the young one and you got the parents and grandparents by default. Yeah. It doesn't work the other way. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that has to be – there are so many things that get, you know, massive attention and, and deservedly so. But, uh, you know, before you, you asked about where our funding comes from, and our wildlife has to compete with world hunger. Our wildlife has to compete with – medical research and, you know, all these really valid things. And there has to be a way up of, of which is more important. But, 
you know, your top 50 philanthropic donations for any year, conservation doesn't come in one. You mentioned the research uh, component of yes. the reptile park, but there's also the ve uh, the anti-venom unit. Yeah, yeah. I think that's often what people think about the reptile park. They yep. think about the anti-venom unit. And I, I, my understanding is, because I know that when we Australian Geographic was out at Terry Hills, we used to get a lot of funnel web spiders under our desks yep. and wandering around the office. Yep. And we always used to pop them in a, a little jar and, and take them up. Or yep. somebody would come and collect them. Yep, is that still happening? Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a really critical part that you just mentioned, which is the community uh, helping us with that. So for the funnel webs, because we do snakes and spiders, but for the funnel webs, you know, arguably the world's deadliest spider. Um, it just so happens to live in the most populated part of Australia between Melbourne mm. and Brisbane, including Sydney in the middle. Um, and it has a really strong likelihood of coming in contact with people because it likes rock walls, gardens, um, eastern facing slopes that we tend to like as well. And, uh, and the bottom of your swimming pool. Yeah, that's right. So um, we have, the, the antivenom was created in uh, 1981. Now, funnel webs, interestingly, only the venom impacts primates and in invertebrates. And so for a lot of other things like dogs and uh, the antivenom is actually made with rabbits. Best cared for rabbits in the world. Now, we have never made a drop of antivenom. We produce venom. And we send it off to be made into antivenom. It's actually uh, made through a process. They can use a rabbit, really small volume of blood, because the rabbit has no symptoms nor effect of the venom. But it still develops an antibody. So the venom is put in in really small amounts to the rabbit. Um, small amounts of, of rabbit blood are then taken, and the antibody is extracted and used. And... Since 1981, when it was created, not a single death has occurred in Australia. Oh, wow. That's quite uh, an achievement. A, a, a real achievement. And it's uh, commonly used. It's commonly stocked in hospitals, provided by government, a good resource. And, uh, you know, last year, I mean, there was a young lad on the Central Coast. He got bitten and uh, he had 12 vials of antivenom. Now, that takes us a lot of spiders to milk to produce 12 vials. So the community service part is... We send people out, you know, keepers, myself, et cetera, to try and collect spiders at the right time of year. We just can't do it. it, it like, it, we just can't find the spiders. You've just got to be in the right place at the right exactly. time. Yeah, that would be hard. So you really do need people to find them for you? Yeah, or... We do, we do. And see, we also only need males. But uh, people can give us any, either spider because we just let the females go. Um, but the males are six times more venomous than the females. So the antivenom is constructed to suit the... Uh, more dangerous of the two. Um, so it's the males in particular, and they're half the size of the females. And just curiously, the female normally eats them after sex. So, uh, so <laughs> They're hard to find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's what we need. And so that's that. literally our, our role there is to uh, extract the venom. Now, we keep two to 300 male funnel webs at any one time. Um, and we constantly need them because they only live for six to 12 months, naturally. Right, so, so you've the, got high turnover on Yes, that. by the time we receive the males, and they get good care. They get a beautiful, <laughs> perfectly humid, moist peat environment with a cricket twice a week and really happy spiders. And, you know, the way we get the venom is to actually, you just gently stroke their side. They rear up. They're very aggressive. They're confident in their venom and they have big fangs. They rear up and they get a droplet of venom on the end of each fang. Wow. And we vacuum it. So we pull it up into a pipette. But we have trialled something this year. So instead of having two to 300 funnel webs, we now have 3,000. Goodness. We have collected females that had egg sacs. In each egg sac is between 50 to 100 young funnel webs. And we are growing them up. 
we've had a couple that have just turned to males after a year. And you can only tell that once they shed their skin and they show you some of their anatomy that are boys. We thought that was going to take five years. Um, and it's a really long process. We, you know, you think about opening just a single enclosure, lid off, spray with water, cricket in, lid back on, 3,000 times twice wow. a week. It is intense. But furthermore, we assume that half of the babies are going to be female and we, have to, we can't use them. We have to release them. So it's a really big process and we started with 1,500 two years ago. We've just put in another injection of 1,500. We don't have any idea. They could all be female. <laughs> we, we do, you know what, temp, uh, but that's, um, that's where we're at now. We hope to be self-sufficient if this works. Great. And does anyone else do the same thing? Does anyone, is anyone else supplying that antivenom? Not with funnel webs, um, not with spiders. There is uh, some redback, but for the redbacks, uh, another, uh, the, the, another place does it, but they actually have to uh, cut the redbacks open to remove the venom sacs to produce it because you can't milk them. So we don't do that. Um, but we also have 300 of the world's uh, most venomous snakes and they fit into five groups. Uh, tiger snakes, death adders, taipans, black snakes and brown snakes. Yeah. And they all need uh, different type anti-venoms. And so we, uh, we milk those snakes. There is another place uh, called Venom Supplies and they uh, supply for different purposes uh, and include some sea snakes. But for the terrestrial land snakes, we're the sole supplier for the production of Australian antivenom. And that saves about 300 lives per year. And by my rough count, I have not checked the data, but my rough count, that's been happening since the late 1950s. And I count that it's probably saved about 20,000 lives. Amazing. Amazing. What an amazing service. Now, I think we've all seen on YouTube in the last few weeks, you milking something very different indeed. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah, so... Uh, Ah, it's a, just a short while ago now, but uh, platypus, this wonderful monotreme that uh, is, is so wildly wacky with a duck bill and you know, beaver tail and webbed feet and claws on its knuckles to walk, and uh, it, uh, the males are also venomous. And, you know, there are a couple of species like slow loris over in Indonesia that have... But I, I think my, 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 my gut feel and interpretation is that it's known that the platypus venom is for male-to-male -male combat. They right. have very few predators, none underwater, you know, once they're on. And their burrows are often concealed, so they go straight from the water to the burrow. So um, the venom is for male-to-male -male combat. And the way I think probably works, I mean, because this platypus, it's venom for us. There's no known pain treatment. Morphine won't even, uh, you know, affect it. If people are, uh, are hit by it, it's one of the, the most intense, excruciating pains of anything on earth. But does it kill but, you? It wouldn't kill you or? Well, no, you could, your body can possibly go into shock. Right. Um, so the venom itself, you know, would have a, a consequence of that. But for male to males, platypus, I reckon it's just like a bee sting to them now. Because they've had, you know, millions upon millions of years to perfect this venom, it's just got stronger and stronger and stronger. And they whack the spur in and, and because it doesn't kill the other male plat. And, you know, the amount of venom that goes in, it, considering what it does to us, um, you would think it would have a, a greater effect. So they use it for combat. But um, And look, the people that get hit by it are normally people like me playing with them. So, like yeah, it would be researchers and yes, people like that. that's right. Most, most people don't handle <laughs> no, a platypus. No, they don't come in and don't handle a platypus. So, but because of this unique venom, researchers have historically been very interested in its properties. And, you know, it could have a new modern-day pain 
relief solution for you know mm-hmm. people undergoing surgery or recovery or different. So, um, so hey, yeah. Uh, yeah, extracted some platypus venom, and I did it the only way I knew how, which is the same as a snake. Mm. So we had our, our big male platypus. He's very, very quiet, so he handles quite well. It's not. Um, so I want to say I wore gloves, but the thing is that it really restricts your hand movements and for the your ability to just hold the animal as well. And so I presented the the venom actually comes. Um, the best way to describe it is that it like the venom's down in what we would let's say our leg. The spur of the platypus is on your ankle but the venom's actually up in your bottom. And so it gets delivered from the top of its thigh all the way down to that spur on its ankle. Uh, and so the spur itself, I treated it like a fang and I uh, just presented it. Uh, and the spur's about, oh, you know, a centimetre long, um, uh, three to four millimetre thick. It's mm. really big, you know, not like a small snake fang. And I presented that to a, 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 the same thing we milk snakes with, but with a thick... So it's like a little glass, a shot glass. Mm. And on top, there's a really a thick filament of plastic. So I presented that to the fang and pushed it on. You put a little bit of pressure up on and hope that that releases the venom. And it did. And it, it squirted out in one... So um, that's sent off and people are having a, a look through it and I don't know. I mean, it's very hard to have a continuous supply. So mm. it's kind of... Um, but, uh, yeah, something of interest. And, and how did the platypus react? Oh, look, he's fine. <laughs> old Petey doesn't give a hoot. He's, um, he's a very quiet old boy and, mm. you know, they, uh, they handle quite well. So he, himself, he, he just sat there and his leg was presented with a bit of a push and um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think he quite knew nor cared what was happening. No, no, he probably didn't. How can people get involved themselves? Because that's really what it leads to, isn't it? People want to yeah. be able to do something to help. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a number of things I can say there. Um, and I guess it's, it, it is individual. But the, I come back to the kids again. You've you got to give your kids the opportunity to get their hands dirty. A lot of people do, but I credit my time in the bush. I, mean, I grew up in Western Sydney, you know, 40 kilometres from where we are right now in mm-hmm. Greystains. And so you wouldn't exactly say I grew up in the wildest place. I mean, it was wild, but it wasn't nature. In a different way. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, was, I spent a lot of time in the bush with my parents at a lot of the places featured in Ausgeo magazines that I have had since day one. <laughs> and those very places uh, gave me a slice of what Australia was like and about. And so kids getting out and doing that is really important. Um, but you know, the, the, there's a million ways to get involved, whether it's support an organization like ours, visit an organization like ours or any one of, I mean, I like local interests. If you're, and again, we have to have Australian solutions. We talked about the difference between us and the world a little while ago. The world doesn't, they hear we've got the worst extinction rate on earth, but it doesn't compute. You know, there's no, um, we need Australian solutions, and I do think if you're in Perth, support a numbat. If you're in Tassie, support a devil. If you're in the Northern Territory, support a crocodile. If you're in North Queensland, do a tree kangaroo. It makes sense, mm. and I like that, and I think it uh, for kids in that area, they're also the things they're likely to come in contact with. Um, I have a bit of a gripe about Australian conservation and our funding largely, and I know people are passionate about it, but, you know, like pandas just got their status delisted. Mm. Whereas the number is like there's less than a thousand, and you know, like there's a hundred thousand orangutans left in the world, and I get how important there are, but there are less than a thousand bilbies and northern hairy nosed wombats and night parrots and orange bellied parrots and Gilbert's potteroos, and I could go on forever. So that's why we need to show people the animals, they need to understand what we have here, and just how important it is for us to love what we've got in our own backyard, really. Well, and you guys do such a fantastic job because. 
look, as I said before, you can't just tell people that, ah, the world's stuffed. Mm. It doesn't work. And you also can't just have an explicitly negative message or we turn off. We all do it. Mm. Um, but you guys aren't afraid of putting uh, stories out there that are real. And that's really important because a lot of models that, you know, aren't necessarily Stranger Graphic or Reptile Park, or, but, you know, it has to be cute and cuddly. And, uh, you know, a little brown dunnart, well, what the heck is that? <laughs> um, but you guys feature stories and, and I pay absolute kudos to you for that, that are real stories that aren't always the cutest or the sexiest or the, but they're real Australians. We, we once did a fundraiser for the Lord Howe Island Phasmid. Yeah. <laughs> so they Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so we no. love our, we love our strange looking insects yep. as well as our furry creatures. Yep. So look, I think, you know, with you on their side and advocating yep. for Australia's wildlife, I think we, you know, we do have a chance to sort of change yep. the way things are going. We do hope that we can turn this big ship around yep. and make a difference. And we're very grateful to people like you for your passion Thank and your you. commitment, Tim. My passion is is my passion, but uh, I'm only as strong as a, a you know, like a team, if you like, as the people around me, and that's the people that support what we do. My pockets aren't endless. We only achieve what we do because people support us. So the real thanks goes to the people that are in that initiative and, and they are the uh, facilitators of the conservation we do. Wonderful. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Chrissy. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Tim Faulkner. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram, at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, You'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Listener.